All right, Jesse, last week's killer was such a frustrating loser. What case do you have for me this week? A glamorous Miami family amasses fortune, fame, and heartbreak while whining and dining Hollywood's elite. But bad choices, bankruptcies, and some very bad people lead to two gruesome murders and a legacy lost. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about quirks, jerks, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, pretty please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help wonderful new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, it's really fun to find out what bonus episodes people are responding to because we don't get that uh, immediate feedback all the time like on our regular episodes. And I'm really enjoying it. So yeah, if you guys have joined the Patreon, please let me know which ones you're digging and give Andy and I any suggestions because we have so much fun with the Patreon. Speaking of you beautiful patrons, we are so excited this week to welcome and shout out a new set of you guys. Welcome to Amanda F., Caitlin H., and Tara M., Rachel R., Shara L., and Amy F., who I think I went to high school with. I think it's the same Amy I'm thinking of, so go Eagles. What up, girl? Ashley M., Sandra M., and Christy F., and finally, Yasmin B., and, well, Pop, somebody who goes by Pop, which I'm all into. Thank you all. It means so much to us that you're patrons. And thank you all of you for joining us today, especially if you are new to the podcast. Wow, Andy. So (laughs) she knows. I mean, she knows, guys, because I obviously talk to her all day, every day. But I'm very, very excited about today's episode. Good. I'm very excited to hear it. So excited that I made Andy switch our recording time so we could record basically as soon as I finished writing it because I had to immediately. Literally. I was literally like my hands are covered with blue ink because I handwrite my scripts and they're like cramping right now because I was so excited about immediately telling her about this case. So because I'm just so friggin' thrilled, I think we should jump right in. The Fountain Blue Hotel. Do you know where the Fountain Blue is? Yes. One of my buyers this weekend (laughs) stayed at the Fountain Bleu, and I was like, oh, you're so fancy. The Fountain Bleu. Well, it opened in December of 1954 and immediately became the glittering jewel of Miami Beach and the playground to the rich, famous, and possibly sometimes criminal. Naughty. Yes. Frank Sinatra was a regular. He would rule the corridors with his Rat Pack and rumored mafia connections. Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe, and Elvis all held court in sumptuous suites and the ballroom, and of course, poolside. The hotel would become a pop culture mainstay, as I know you know, Andy. 
And it would be featured in movies like Scarface, Goldfinger, and then more recently in television like episodes of The Sopranos and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. For decades, the Fountain Blue was synonymous with not only luxury, but Miami itself. So today we are going to be talking about the family that started and opened and basically created the Fountain Blue. The charismatic and enigmatic hotelier who built it was a man named Ben Novak. He, along with his stunning model wife, Bernice, presided over their kingdom with panache and style. And this really was, Andy, a place of real style. I mean, we're talking about like mid-century, real beautiful clothes, almost like what we think of as like costume set pieces these days. I guess that Ben Novak had a very strict dress code and policy, especially when it first opened. So if you were in the restaurant or in the nightclub, you had to be wearing a full suit and tie or a cocktail dress. Yeah. You know also that they had the immaculate makeup, the perfectly set hair. I mean, it was a real scene. It was all just mid-century modern gorgeousness that eventually went into kind of like the heady abandon of the 60s and 70s. But infidelities and excesses would wreak havoc on the hotel, the Novaks, and their son, Ben Jr. Ben Jr. would grow into a man who had his own weaknesses, proclivities, and peccadilloes when young buried an Ecuadorian exotic dancer named Narcissa, or Narcy to us, the empire would finally crumble. So this is the story of the scions of the Fountain Blue, and it would go from one of entrepreneurship, glamour, incredible architecture, to one of adultery, bondage, weird sexual acts, home invasion, cruel plots, and eventually two brutal homicides. I, like, for a moment forgot we were even going to be covering a homicide. <laughs> I know. You know, I got to say this this happened to me with doing the research for this case and reading the book. So I would like to thank Lorena A for officially requesting this case, but I do think I talked to some of you guys like off the cuff, maybe online somewhere about this case. So I think more than just Lorena requested it, but thank you Lorena and thank you all of you. And guys, going forward, we are going to be rehauling our website to have like an official request form. But for now, just message me at lovers at lovemurder.love instead of DMing me because then it's at least in one place that I can search. Yeah, DMs are hard. DMs are hard to keep track of. So yeah, lovers at lovemurder.love is the best place and you could just put in the subject line case request. It'll make it so much easier for us to be able to find it and then shout you out because I know that this one was a popular request as well. So my primary source today was a book called The Prince of Paradise by John Glatt. It was like 500 pages of pure awesome. Jessica. It was. It was so entertaining. There's going to be parts where I'm like summing up some details and I'm like, well, just read the book. But I'm going to give you guys all of the goosiest, goriest, juiciest details that I absolutely can. I also watched a Dateline episode called Family Affair and an episode of The Oxygen Show, Dying to Belong. 
So I'll shout out some other articles along the way. And of course, you can always check the show notes. So we are going to start by talking about beautiful Bernice, the future queen of the Fountain Bleu. So this episode was really hard for me to write. I mean, in some ways, it was the easiest episode I've ever written. In other ways, it was so difficult because everything was interesting about it. And I wanted to tell you guys everything. (laughs) (laughs) It was also, to me, like a story of an olden day. It was almost like mythological in the way that everyone in this case and in this family seemed to be cursed by either beauty, wealth, or hubris. So there's just these incredible themes throughout the story. And it starts with Bernice. So she was born on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in 1922, December of 1922. She was the first daughter of two girls born to a British boxing champion and very financially successful Fourier. Wow. (laughs) Yes. So he moved on over to the United States and he made a living providing the very fancy elite of especially Manhattan and New York City with designer furs. So he would go up to Canada and get the best furs in the world bring them back. He had expert, I guess, tailors or whoever makes these coats and other things. And he was highly sought after. He was very politically connected and he was a big old playboy. So by the time he was 36 years old, he had never married, even though he was quite the catch and apparently a pretty good looking guy too. And he was on one of his trips to Canada when he stopped in Gloversville, New York, which was kind of up where I grew up. Like, it's like between the Adirondacks and the capital region of New York State. And he stopped into a little department store in Gloversville, which is not a very big area. And when he walked in, he was immediately struck by this stunning clerk, this shop girl that worked there. She was 21 years old, and her name was Rowena. She was gorgeous. So by all accounts, she was beautiful. She had this big mane of fiery red hair and ice blue eyes. Wow. So I'm kind of imagining a young Nicole Kidman when she really had the wild curly hair, and she wasn't like super duper skinny. It was like when she first hit the scene and far and away, you know? I was thinking of the girl from Brave, the cartoon. (laughs) Merida. (laughs) Yeah, somewhere between those two things is where we would find Rowena, who was (laughs) Bernice's mother. So he was completely sprung right away, and he wooed the pants off of her. I mean, quite literally. They were married within months of meeting after he had been a playboy his entire life. They had Bernice in 1922 and then her little sister Maxine two years later, but unfortunately, the union was not a happy one. Controlling Jack would not let his beautiful young wife socialize at all. So he was still up to his no good, by the way. So he thinks that he moves her to New York City and he thinks that it's okay for himself to go out and to sleep with other women and continue his playboy lifestyle. But whether it was projection or being controlling or just being a total freaking asshole, he was wildly jealous about the thought of his young, beautiful bride 
going out on the town. So he didn't even let her go out with him. So she was stuck at home with the kids and kind of miserable. And he began to get so paranoid about her maybe sneaking out on him that he asked his best friend to basically go spy on her and spend some time with her and report back to him. Wow. But you might be able to see where this is going because she's gorgeous and his best friend is a man. And he's like watching her and then coming in and hanging out with her. One thing led to another and she had an affair with his best friend. That's what you get for having your best friend spy on your hot wife. All of this is sad and very predictable. And it gets very devastating, though, because this is like, that is like karma for you, jerk. But then it gets very sad because we're still talking about the 1920s. And when he discovered that they were having this affair, he immediately disowned her, kicked her out into the street, said that she was going to get nothing. Now, this was a time where people weren't getting divorced, especially people not of his stature in society. So this was all over the newspapers. And of course, the newspapers were only saying that she was a tramp who had stepped out on her wonderful, handsome, successful husband, and not the fact that he had mistresses all over the city. Yeah. Her reputation was totally ruined. She had no money. He said that he was going to fight for full custody of the girls and she would never see them. And I feel like almost this is where this curse of this family originated. When I was reading this book and I was really thinking about this, I was like, this is such a cruel act that it almost feels like it cursed this family for generations. He ended up casting her out to the point where she ended up being committed to an insane asylum. And she ended up dying in a mental health facility. And he barred her at every step of the way from being a part of her children's life at all. And then to make matters worse, he didn't even want to raise the girls. He was just doing it to punish his cheating wife. So when his sister would not continue to take care of the two very young children, he sent them to an orphanage. What? Bernice and Maxine were raised in an orphanage, and then they were raised mostly by a foster family. But the screwed up thing was is that he was still weirdly a part of their lives. Like, he, they would live at the orphanage or the foster family's home, and then on holidays would go to his house. Uh... I know. There's just no words for this type of behavior, especially when... The mother wanted so badly to be a part of their lives. They said that they only ever got to see her when she would literally come to the gates at the orphanage and beg to see them. And they said she was beautiful and that they loved her. That's what Maxine said. And it was heartbreaking. So sad. It's very sad. It's very sad. But that's why I think this is like the origin of this family legacy right here in this moment. And that's why I included it. (laughs) Like, I don't think any other story... Her telling of this story goes back this many generations, but I think it's important to the story. This is like when somebody who I just met is like, how did you and your husband meet? And I was like, well, when I was six years old, he's like, we met in San Francisco when we were both almost 30. (laughs) Don't go all the way back to when you were six years old. Like it's important to the story. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. 
But this time, guys, it really is. Anyway, basically, both of these girls were stunning. They inherited their mother's looks, and their evil dad's brother ended up being like a booker at a department store in Manhattan. So he started booking the girls for modeling gigs in this department store. So they became models, essentially. And then when Bernice was I think 18 years old, 17 or 18, she was going to start secretarial school, but she was actually stopped on the street by the most prestigious modeling agency in all of Manhattan and asked to be a model. So she started modeling and she became essentially like a supermodel of the era. She modeled for everyone. She was a spokeswoman for Coca-Cola. Like she became the face of Coca-Cola for a while. She had like auburn hair, blue eyes, this kind of like freckled all-American look that was all the rage at the time. And she also modeled for Salvador Dali. Oh, no way. Yes. Although I have to say that she did not enjoy that modeling gig as much as some of her others because apparently Salvador Dali was a bit of a creep. And when they had already agreed to the terms with her modeling agency of what she was going to be doing, when he got her alone, he said, well, now you have to take off your clothes. And she was like, uh, no, that's not part of the deal. Oh, <laughs> and he's like, my God. Yes, it is. I'm the artist. So disrobe, please. And she was like, I will leave. I'm not doing it. And so her sister Maxine said that she had a lot of character and that was not how she wanted to succeed in the business. So she actually told her modeling agency she wouldn't model for Dolly again. And though she could have had her pick of any wealthy man in New York City, Bernice married a nice middle-class guy who treated her like gold. And it seemed like maybe Bernice was breaking this cycle. She wasn't picking a wealthy, abusive asshole like her father had been to her mother because he treated her like an object. She was going to pick somebody who really saw her for who she was and was nice to her. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> her really sweet husband, Archie, went off to Europe during World War II to fight Nazis because he was that kind of guy. Just that, yeah. Yep, and gorgeous, famous model Bernice was left in Manhattan all by her lonesome, and Archie, unlike Bernice's father, had no interest in policing her whereabouts or denying her agency or telling her she could not model because he wasn't that much of an asshole. And he was like, yeah, babe, have a good time. I'll be back after I've killed a bunch of Nazis. And so she was like still modeling all over the place. And every night she'd go out with like her model friends to all of the city's hot spots, like the Stork Club and everything that was hot in the city at that time. And so it was one of these nights in early 1945 that she met a very charismatic hotelier, 15 years her senior, named Ben Novick. Well, Ben had been raised in New York by his Russian Jewish immigrant parents, but it seems like after they got to the United States, his parents had opened a resort up in the Catskills in what they called the Borscht Belt. And he had learned alongside his sister all about the hospitality industry, and it really lit a flame in him. He wanted to do that for the rest of his life, but on the biggest scale possible. So he ended up becoming quite a shrewd businessman. He pissed a lot of people off. I got to say, he was charismatic. He could be really fun, but he was also kind of a dick, as I think most people who get to a certain level of power have to be. But they said that his personality was very 
forceful. But there was like a charming edge to it as well. So it, depending on how you received it, you could be like, wow, this is the most incredible man in the world. Or wow, he's kind of intense. Well, Bernice was not super interested in him when they first met. Obviously, she was married. And even if she had been looking to step out on Archie, it was not going to be with an older guy who was already married himself. Yeah. But when he wanted something, he He's went for it. Oh, yeah. He really, <laughs> like, it was like lightning bolt, love at first sight. We're going to hear about this kind of lightning bolt type of love at first sight a couple times in this episode. Again, cursed. This is why I think I think this is cursed. Ben, just like Bernice's dad when he first saw her mom, was just immediately in love with Bernice, which, again, these guys didn't know anything about these women when they met them, obviously. And at this point, she was, this is just based on looks, and she was probably 22 or 23, and he's pushing 40, but he was, he was, like, attractive, but he also already had a hearing aid. He's always had hearing issues his whole life. So when he's, like, in the club, he's like, speak up, sweetheart, you know? So it, it's <laughs> even though he's, like, only almost 40. He's actually, like, 89. He seemed, li- he seemed a little older. So she was, like, not into this at all. He's like, do you have a card? Can I get your phone number? She was like, no, I'm married. Leave me alone. But he was not going to give up. So he ended up bribing the maitre d' at the club that they were at to get her number. And the maitre d' gave him, like, a completely different dude's number who had been sitting at the table. So he's like, oh. So he, like, hunted down her friends. He went to the store club night after night to try to, like, get her contact information. And they wouldn't give it to him, but he found out that she was a model with this particular agency. So he ended up setting up a modeling shoot in Havana, Cuba. And he called her agency and he said, I'm doing a very specific beach shoot in Cuba. And I need a model that looks exactly like this. And he then just described Bernice to a T perfectly. Oh, my God. Then paid the expenses to fly Bernice, another model, a makeup artist, and a photographer, as well as I think an assistant, down to Cuba in the 40s for a fake photo shoot, all so that he could see Bernice again. Wow. So – Depending on where you're coming from, this is either very romantic or very freaking creepy. Yeah, it's really possessive and crazy. Well, he spun it well because he spun it to Bernice like, I just wanted to have a minute of your time, but I didn't want to take it up without paying you. Like, I didn't want to, like, take advantage of your time. Since you're a professional model, I paid you as a professional model. And it would be nice if you'd like to spend some time with me as well. Don't you think that's kind of manipulative? I think it's completely manipulative. And it does set up a precedent of using his wealth and his influence to try to manipulate her into doing what he wants. If she actually wanted to spend time with you, she would chat with you at the club. I know, but I got to say, it worked. She was kind of swept off her feet. And it didn't take very long for them to start rendezvousing in New York because his wife lived in Miami where he had a hotel. Yeah, because he's married too. He's married too. So he had a much older wife because I think he got married pretty young. Also, they were in the process of adopting a baby together when he meets Bernice and goes full force after her. And her husband 
is in World War II fighting for liberty and justice. Like, this is, like, not a great beginning to a relationship. But she was swept away and he was mesmerized and it did not take long for old Archie to get a Dear John letter and only a little bit longer for Ben to disentangle himself from his wife, who was named Bella. And I guess Archie was, like, a great guy. She went to his mother's house, and she's like, I sent a letter to Archie, but also I want to tell you in person that I'm ending the relationship. So she tried to do the right thing, and I guess that Archie ended up being a lifelong friend because he was just that good of a guy. Oh, my God. What a legend. I know. I know. Nice guys really do finish last, that poor, beautiful man. I hope he had lots of happiness in his life. So it's a little bit more complicated because he had significantly more money, Ben Novak, and they had just adopted this baby when he was figuring out ways to dump his long-suffering wife is what it sounded like. But it occurred. It happened. And once the legal tape was all cleared out of the way, and he essentially abandoned this child. We'll, like, we'll talk about him a little bit later, but he really doesn't factor into the story in a way that's very, very sad. Ben and Bernice did get married in a simple civil ceremony in New York in 1952. That is when Bernice officially moved to Miami. Already they were building the Fontainebleau. So Bernice's mother was banned from attending her own daughter's wedding by her god-awful ex-husband, Jack. And Bernice's sister, Maxine, would later say, Our mother was alive, but our father would not let us know where she was. Bernice married a man just like our father. Controlling, self-centered, and not particularly sensitive. Not good. Not good. Yeah, I feel like this was a very real, like, sliding doors moment for Bernice, where it was like, You could stay with this, like, good as gold, pretty run-of-the-mill average guy, but you're going to have a happy life, a happy middle-class life together. Or you can take door B, and you are really going for a grab bag. You are going to have a lavish, exciting, incredible life, but it doesn't mean it's going to be happy. And she chose door B. And I got to say, her life was not easy. But it was very, very exciting. In December of 1954, like I said in the opener, the Fountain Blue opened and it was immediately a huge hit. John Glatt goes into the ins and outs of how this <laughs> legendary hotel was made. And by the way, guys, I think it's like the Architectural Institute of America. I wrote it down somewhere. I think somewhere in my script. But like they said that this was like the number one architectural feat in Florida in the last 100 years, the Fountain Blue. And they ranked it as 93rd in the United States. And the architect, who is now very famous, forgive me for not remembering his name, and (laughs) Ben hated each other. Really? Because Ben basically took all of the credit and gave the architect a really bad deal because he was kind of just starting out. But of course, he was the one who actually created the wonder of the Fountain Blue. And Ben Novak took all the credit and paid him a very bad rate. Like, I think they came to blows about it. Like, there was a fist fight involved in this. So if you want all the details, go get The Prince of Paradise by John Glatt. There's also another book about this case as well. 
But yeah, this place was a scene. I mean, we're talking anyone who's anyone, all of Hollywood, international royalty was coming to this place. There was the mob, like big old mobsters and mafia were coming in here. JFK was there for a while. He was reportedly having an affair with Marilyn Monroe at this place. Oh my I God. I guess that like Frank Sinatra got like shaken down by the mafia at the Fountain Blue because they were like, you're going to intervene with JFK to help us in like calling off this big hunt for criminal organizations and stuff. So it was like, there was just a lot of stuff going on. Miami it's just is like crazy. all the luxury. It was nuts. It was crazy rat pack nuts at this point. And there was like a lot of obviously like racist stuff going on, which Frank Sinatra, to his credit, sounds like he was a big asshole about a lot of things. <laughs> like in the book, John Glatt is writing about like Mia Farrow coming and crying at the Fountain Blue and trying to get him to come see her. And he's turning her away and about him being like drunk and a jerk and like putting an ice bucket over Ben Novak's head and <sighs> telling him he ran a shitty place. Like a lot of stuff about Frank Sinatra being a dick. But one thing he wasn't a dick about was he was like, I'm not singing and I'm not staying anywhere where Sammy Davis Jr. cannot be at the pool, Good in the front him. row, at my table, absolutely not shut it down. Good for him. And so that was like, I guess they kind of drove Ben Novak crazy because Sammy Davis Jr. knew that he was like a bit of an asshole and a bit of a racist. And so he's like, who we got who's black around here that way I can bring into the fountain blue and go to the pool with? <laughs> I love it. So it was just a wild place at this time. And Ben and Bernice lived on the 17th floor in this incredible four-bedroom duplex suite that looked over the beautiful ocean. And this was in the Fountain Blue. And they had a dining room, a billiard room. It was something like, like 4,000 square feet. This is a suite. And they even had a piano bar in their suite. Wait, what do you mean? Like, it was like a room for music and piano, and it featured a baby grand piano that had been given to Bernice from Frank Sinatra. Wow. And I think, it, like, why they say it's a piano bar is that there was, like, seating so that, like, this could be a private area. So if Frank Sinatra wanted to come and do a private show. So they were living this crazy lifestyle there. A former Miami Beach mayor said that they lived, acted, and were treated like royalty of Miami Beach. And what does any king want for his kingdom but an heir to continue his legacy, of course? A male heir. A male heir. The couple's one and only child, Ben Novak Jr., because of course it's gotta be a junior. It's always junior. <laughs> was born on January 19th, 1956. And he was considered the little prince of the Fontainebleau. Oof. I mean, John Glatt called his book The Prince of Paradise. You'd think that, like, having this run of this incredible hotel, wealth beyond imagination, celebrity godparents that are essentially raising you in this crazy atmosphere would make for kind of like an Eloise-like but Miami... Growing up, like, you'd have all these quirky stories about all these incredible people, but this was not his experience. It sounded like Ben's childhood was extremely lonely. Ben Sr. was not a very good father, as you can probably imagine Shocker. by everything I've already told you about him. Yeah. <laughs> 
And I really don't think that Bernice meant to be a bad mother. I don't think she knew how to be a good mother. Yeah, of course. I mean, look at the environment she grew up in. She's not to blame at all on She that. was taken away from her mother and traumatized very early on. And Maxine alluded to some terrible things that the two of them had gone through together. Yeah. Also, at this time in the world, if you had this level of wealth, you didn't really raise your kids. Your job at her level was to entertain celebrities and royalty and ambassadors. And be the wife. And to look good. So she was supposed to drop the weight right away, immediately fit back in her clothes, and look like her model self next to her husband. So he had a wet nurse, he had multiple night nurses, and Maxine, Bernice's sister, said it was really sad because he did not get the one thing that he craved, which was a lot of time with his parents. And he was raised, I think, mostly by this one German nanny who was a little gruff. In fact, he was born naturally left-handed, and she was of the old school that oh my God, basically stop. beat you until you were right-handed. And as a result of the stress at such a young age, he developed a stutter that he would deal with for the rest of his life. Oh, my God. That's so sad. The funny thing is, it's like kind of a joke, like, oh, poor little rich boy. But in this case, it's kind of true. He did not have the things he needed in his life. He didn't have love and nurturing. And he was put in a very weird position because there were kidnapping attempts made on his life because his parents were so wealthy. Now, no one actually successfully kidnapped him, but the security in the hotel thwarted at least a handful of these kidnapping attempts. If you know about the attempt, the fear is just as horrifying as something actually happening. Oh, yeah. He grew up with a lot of respect for law enforcement and security because of that, but a lot of paranoia. Yeah. A lot of fear. And he also grew up only surrounded by people who were paid to cater for him. They either worked in the hotel or they were his nannies or they were room service or they were whatever. They were paid to take care of him. So he kind of grew up to be an arrogant little shit. So did he actually live in the hotel? Like they all lived yes, in the hotel? Yes, they lived. They That's all insane. lived in the hotel for I think something like 17 years. What? Like he was raised in this hotel. They lived in that 4,000 square foot wow. suite that was on the 17th floor. And this drove Bernice a little crazy. Wouldn't you want to rent that out? She wanted a house. He wanted to be in it. He wanted to be there. He wanted to live it. He wanted to control it. It was like his everything. More than Bernice and definitely more than Ben Jr. His Aunt Maxine said that his existence was pretty sad. He was a little king, but he didn't get any love. Like, for instance, his dad's chauffeur took him trick-or-treating. What, to the different rooms on the floor? Literally. And yeah. they just didn't really take him out very much because they worried about the kidnapping thing. He didn't really make any friends of his peer group or of his age. Even Maxine had children, and she said that he never really seemed to warm up to his cousins. So a lot of people in things I've seen have talked about how no one liked him and how he was a jerk and how he was arrogant. But it's like, well, we got to look at how this kid was made because nobody just grows up to be an asshole. 
I mean, we all have personal personality traits. Some kids are more difficult than others. But like, this was a kid that needed a lot more than he was getting, even though on some levels he was getting everything. He was getting more than most people, yeah. Oh my gosh. But Ben was also mocked by the other children at school because he had that bad stutter. He was kind of shunning them before they could shun him. As a speech therapy graduate, I feel for him. Wait, can I tell you something embarrassing? I don't know if I've told you this before. I had the biggest crush when I was in kindergarten on a kid, I'm not going to say his name, who went to speech therapy. He had to go every day. And I started faking a lisp so I could go to speech therapy. And they're like, you know, we're not going to send you to speech therapy, but we are going to send you to a psychologist because this is insane. <laughs> but so up your alley. It is so me. <laughs> oh, love. Guys, love. It's the love that gets me. Way more than the murder. I'm here for the love. I attest to that. In any case, he actually only had one good friend throughout all of his school years. And this one good friend he did keep until his adulthood. This was another kid that had really been through the ringer, and we'll talk about him later. He met this kid when he was like 12 or 13 years old, and this other kid, his only friend, also grew up to be famous. We are talking about Dr. Fraser Crane, Kelsey Grammer. Uh, okay. Casual. We have like four. I'm not joking. Get excited for the end of this episode. You just, you don't even, you don't touch that pause button, everyone. Because, or touch the pause button. Don't touch the stop button because we have four. They might push the fast forward now. (laughs) Wikipedia fun facts tonight. Yeah, and one of them is about Kelsey Grammer, which, by the way, I found a blog post called Why Does God Hate Kelsey Grammer? And you will see why later if you stick around to the end of this episode. I feel like he's always been 55. (laughs) <laughs> so it's really hard to imagine him being a like kid. 13, 14 yes, years 100%. old. 100%. Like I can't. I like when we're talking about him being friends with him, I'm imagining like 55-year-old Kelsey Grammer. I know. Poor Sideshow Bob. Man, he's really been through the ringer. In any case, Kelsey Grammer was his only friend. So mostly alone, Ben grew up fixated on basically three things that would shape his adult life. He was really into Batman. I guess that the series premiered at some point in his youth, like the Adam West Batman. So he was really, really into Batman. He would end up being a huge collector of Batman memorabilia, at one point being the number two collector in the United States. He had the original Batmobile. What do you mean, like the actual one? It's a car, like the actual car from the 1960s series. Batman! 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 The disco one. Yes! That was the one he was into. That was the one that like got him on this whole Batman thing. But I think along with Batman, and if you think about it, Batman is basically an orphan of wealthy parents who are not there. Duh. They were, like, shot for going to, like, a philanthropic opera. It's, it's really sad. Like, everyone paints, like, Ben Novak Jr. as this, like, super asshole, and I'm sure he was. But, like, <laughs> this was a sad child grown into an immature man. And so he was, like, obsessed with Batman. He was obsessed with, in general, the police and, like, the security guards and the security detail that helped what he thought was, like, save his life. And then the third thing he was influenced by was the showgirls that did the numbers in the hotel 
who were all like coming over from Vegas and were like scantily clad in the little showgirl outfits with the like hot bods and the fake boobs. So that really cemented his physical type for pretty much ever after that. Core foundations of development. Yes, these were the things that mattered to him in the absence of parental guidance. You're going to gravitate to what's around you. There's also a really like funny story from the John Glatbrook too where somebody said that Sinatra had had a fit like on a boat that was like anchored near the beach in front of the Fountain Blue and like threw all of the Fountain Blue silverware like over the side of the boat. And so there was like, Skinny little Ben with like scuba gear, like going to the bottom of the ocean and trying to collect all the silverware. Oh my God. Yes. Like they were like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, Frank threw all the silverware off the boat. So I'm, my dad told me to go get the scuba gear and find it. So yeah, this was a trippy way to grow up. So those three things were really like the foundation of what will become sadly Ben's life. So another thing that happened in Ben's early life that shaped his relationships was that his parents had a very explosive and highly publicized divorce. Oh, another shocker. Another Kel surprise at the Fountain Bleu. So Ben Sr. was not faithful to his wife. Another shocker. He was not terribly discreet as well. Well, he did not have any, like, serious mistresses. Like, he thought it was, like, respectful to have these one-night stands or these little flings. Like, he thought he was being respectful to his wife by being like, you're the only real one for me. But he would bang girls who worked there. Like, he would bang cocktail waitresses and showgirls and people that she is living in this hotel with while they are serving her drinks. So, yeah, not respectful, dude. Not even a little bit. And after they had been married for 12 or 13 years, and she's doing all of this heavy lifting, being the beautiful, stately, respectable, gorgeous, perfect trophy wife, he's just banging people left and right and won't move out of the Fountain Blue, even though she wants a house, she wants a life, she wants a yard, she wants privacy. So after a few years, she was like, you know what, screw this. What's good for the gander? is good for the goose. And she allegedly had a string of affairs with handsome Latin band leaders who would come to play. (laughs) She had a type, play the hotel's famous boom boom room, which is, is that where the boom boom room started? It has to be. It has to be. So I guess it was called the boom boom room and she was just taking advantage so there was one guy named Paquito Hecchiavera. Paquito? Paquito. <laughs> Paquito told the <laughs> Miami News Times that he had been seduced by the stunning mistress of the Fountain Blue. He said, quote, let me tell you, she was a beautiful woman. She was hard to say no to. Sounds like you didn't, Paquito. Well, suspicious Ben Sr., of course, hired a PI to trail her, and he ended up in the papers himself when he reportedly had a Cuban musician named Poopy Campo beaten within an inch of his life and then thrown out of the hotel 
because he had some evidence that there had been some sort of sexual indiscretion with his wife. Well, amidst a swirl of bad publicity and leaked dirty laundry, Ben Sr. filed for divorce only four days before Benji's 10th birthday. Real nice. That's real nice. Poor kid. 10 is hard time, too, because you are young enough where you still really need your parents. You're not like at that teenage stage where you're already kind of starting to separate from them. So it's like all he wanted was his parents to love him. And now you can imagine how obviously self-absorbed they are with their own life. Yeah, if they're both like having affairs, like there's no time for a kid. Which of course he had to know about because the people they were having the affairs with were working in the hotel where they were living. So dirty. It's so dirty. So... Of course, this becomes big in the newspapers, and it was just bad altogether. There was a lot of fighting about it, and he was basically kicking Bernice out, and she was like, it's fine, I don't want to live here anyway. And she was, like, stealing stuff from the hotel, and then he's suing her to get the stuff back, and she's saying, Frank Sinatra gave this to me as a gift, and it was just... Nasty. It's getting nasty. And then she took up with a drummer from the Boom Boom Room. I think his name was George Rodriguez. Can't blame her. Can't blame a girl for finding a hot drummer. And she was actually with him for a long time. I think many years that they dated together. But she never remarried. Ever. So she had her fun. And Ben Sr. did end up remarrying. When they were finally divorced at 62 years old in January of 1969, which is also real nice because his kid literally just turned 13. Oh, my God. (laughs) January is his birth month. So thanks, Dad. To a beautiful model that was 40 years younger than him. So he's 13. His 62-year-old father is marrying a 22-year-old. Less than a decade older. That's kind of fucked. Yeah. But this marriage did not work out. They got divorced three years later. Oh, my God, really? (laughs) Oh, my God. That's so sad. Yeah. So, yeah, they got divorced three years later. And both Ben Sr. and Bernice were working very hard at this time, too. It feels like one-up each other or recapture some youth. They both had facelifts. Bernice apparently had three throughout her life. And Ben had at least one, Ben Sr., that we know about. Well, you always know with a guy. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently, the plastic surgeon did such a great job that Ben Sr. threw him a party at the Fountain Blue to thank him for such an excellent facelift. Oh, my God. Or so he thinks. I mean, I don't think Bernice really did. I think that George was maybe one of the great loves of her life, too, because I think she was with him for a little while. But Ben Sr., it was like the Matthew McConaughey, like, I keep getting older and they stay the same age. but like. To a gross degree, to a point where Bernice's sister Maxine said that when he was in his early 70s, so he was like 70 or 71, I think, he was dating an 18-year-old girl. And even though she was technically 18 years of age, she was a senior in high school and he went to her senior prom with her as a 70-year-old man. You are lying. No, I'm not. I'm not. Read the John Clapbook. It's In this instance, they actually are getting younger. So they're not staying the same age. They're not. They're actually getting younger. 
And then after that, so there's this also this attorney, Richard Marks, that was friends with both Ben Sr. and Jr. And he was like, oh, God. Like, he kept having to clean up all of the relationships because these women would sue him for various things, palimony, or he gave me this thing, or he promised me this thing, because he had so much money that he also ended up, when he was already in his 70s, I think, dating a Miss Uruguay. (laughs) <laughs> who was 50 years younger than him. Stop. And I guess she was a real piece of work. So that attorney later said, quote, both junior and senior seemed to have problems with women. They made bad choices. And they paid a price for it. They paid a big price for it, is what he said. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's a little foreboding for y'all. dun, 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 dun. Ben Jr. <laughs> ben Jr. <laughs> yes, I guess some people called him Benji, but he didn't like it. So Benji survived this rough time in his life, apparently with the help of his future famous friend, Dr. Fraser, but also with his already famous friends. Like his life did not make sense, guys. He, on his 16th birthday, he was given a brand new Lincoln Continental, which I guess was the hot car at the time. From a known mobster, he was given a gold locket from actress Anne Margaret. And apparently Sinatra gave him a huge check, was not disclosed the amount, and made all of the Rat Pack also give him big old piles of cash. This is such a weird way to grow up. He graduated from high school in 1973, and he went to University of Miami for about a year before he transferred to the Southeast Florida Institute of Criminal Justice. So he is a big guy. He's like a big gangly guy, like big but thin. He was like six foot three. Okay. And he looked still pretty young, but he really wanted to be taken seriously. So he ended up growing a beard and he was really into law enforcement. He ended up being a reserve police officer for years and he probably would have committed to law enforcement. Specifically, he wanted to be a detective, but he was told that he was never going to be able to be a detective because of his stutter. Really? Yeah. Later in life, he ended up doing some serious speech therapy that I do think helped ameliorate the stutter. But at that time in his life, he's still at this point 19 years old. They said, unless you get this taken care of, you can't be interrogating people or, you know, reading people Miranda rights. So that was why he was being held back. But at the same time, his dad was saying, well, you don't need to do any of this stuff because you can just be the president of the Fountain Blue. And he was very interested in law enforcement, but it was kind of proving to not be for him anyway, even though, again, like I said, he was on the reserve force for many, many years. But his dad apparently made him the vice president when he was only 19 years old, I think. And gave him the modern-day equivalent of $100,000 a year salary. Wow. As well as a company car and a paid-for apartment and even a personal assistant. Those who worked at the hotel said that Ben Jr. was very immature for his age and nobody took this appointment seriously, even a little bit. One person who was actually running the hotel, a manager involved, said at the time about this appointment of him being the vice president that he decided essentially to focus on security because that was his interest 
And she said that Benji now patrolled the hotel corridors with a huge chain of keys and a police radio hanging around his neck. It was a joke. He was still, yeah, he was still playing policeman. You'd think at his age, he would have moved on to something else. Everybody laughed at him. They really did. He was an annoyance to people who would just tolerate him because you never know how daddy was going to react. She also said that she sensed, she was also, by the way, the first female manager, and Ben Novak almost didn't hire her, but she said that she also sensed that he, even as a young adult, craved his father's approval but never really got it. She said Benji was belligerent because he was trying to make his place in the world. I don't think his father respected him or thought he'd be anything but a playboy. I don't know what went on behind closed doors, but he was not a happy kid. Well, maybe in an effort to be taken seriously, a 20-year-old Benji lied about his age and wooed a 29-year-old, six-foot-tall, former Vegas showgirl named Jill. Oh. Yeah, Ben Jr. said he was 30 and that he ran the Fountain Blue. I mean, he kind of does, right? He he, he does kind of. He's the heir apparent. Exactly. And if everyone's afraid of him, like, because they're worried about what his daddy's going to do. Everyone's sucking up to him. Yeah. It's like they can make fun of him behind his back, but to his girlfriend, they're going to be real nice. Well, she would not find out how old he actually was until they were already married in 1979. Stop it. And after they got married, he's like, oh, I lied by my age about like four years. And she's like, okay, weird, but I get it. And then he's like, actually. And he like kept taking the years off until he got to the right age. And she's like, you're how old? Oh, my God. Well, anyway, Jill said that what had attracted Ben to her was that she put him in his place. She called him out for being rude to waitstaff. She said that because of how he was raised – He was very dismissive, and he treated everyone in his life like a servant. And so she was the one who brought to his attention that you can't treat people like that. Yep. And she just did not put up with his shit. Now, she did not say what attracted her to him, but I do think that there was somewhere an innate sweetness in this whole pile of Ben, you know? Okay. After being catered to his whole life, apparently this dynamic excited Ben. But the couple did end up divorced after only two years of marriage. I mean, she found out that he had been lying to her their entire relationship. Yeah, almost a decade of his age. Yes. Also, Bernice was not a huge fan of Jill. She had kind of hoped he wouldn't get married at, I think he was like 23 or something, to a showgirl. She later said she liked Jill, but Jill said she never really felt like Bernice liked her. And also he told her that if he was going to date her before he even saw her nude. So this is on her because she knew this going in, that all of the women he dated had to have fake breasts. Excuse me? And she was like, well, that's fine because I had my done years ago because I'm a dancer. So they're done. But like. That ended up setting up a very bad trend of him wanting her to look a certain way. And what he liked was very, very, very thin with big fake boobs. She's like real skinny. I'll put up a picture of her on the Instagram. She's tall. She's thin. She's beautiful. She's kind of got like a very long, lean Linda Evangelista almost look like that big eyes, the bob hair. And... She said that she was so embarrassed, though, because he made her take diet pills and he would always bring home clothes for her to wear that were way too skimpy for her. 
She was like, I met Frank Sinatra wearing what was basically a bathing suit top and a mini skirt because that's what he wanted me to wear that night. Oh, my God. Horrifying. And she's like, I look back at the pictures and I'm so embarrassed. So obviously there was a big divide here in who she thought he was and what she was getting and in who he acted like with her. So she ended the marriage, but that all of those things weren't even the thing that broke the marriage. The thing that broke the marriage was just like his dad, just like his maternal grandfather, Ben Jr. was also habitually unfaithful. Stop. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine him, like, being a G. I don't know if he was. And I'm going to tell you guys this, and I mean it not because exotic dancers and sex workers do not make good partners, but only because it was the only people he could control and get catered to in the way that he was used to. So those were his affair partners of choice. Yeah, because he would pay them, right? Yes, of course. So that's who he was cheating with. So he's not exactly like his dad was, or it sounds like even his grandfather was, who were real playboys. It sounds like he had been attracted to Jill because she stood up to him. And then along the way, he didn't like that so much. And he went back to paying women who had to pretend to be nice to him. Exactly. So Ben Jr. at this point is now divorced and just out there in the world making bad choices. Things were not going so great for Ben Sr. either. For a number of reasons, business had slowed. John Glatt talks about all of the socioeconomic reasons why things were not going as well for the Fountain Blue anymore. But also, Ben Sr. refused to innovate at all. He didn't want to change anything about the Fountain Blue. He didn't want to change anything about how they did business. He didn't want to give special deals to travel agents. He wanted it to remain some sort of luxury premium experience where the room rate was the room rate and he didn't cut deals. So obviously things are not going great here. Yeah, but you know what's so interesting is that he's hanging out with all of these 17-year-olds at prom. So you'd think he'd have some like new <laughs> ideas of how to rejuvenate. Sales and his, you know, like if we hang out with 17 year olds now, we learn a lot about TikTok. Like he could have really. It's the same reason that in Silicon Valley, they're like, hey, you, 18 year old intern, tell us how to run this company. You know what you're doing. Yeah. So things were not going great. He would eventually have to file for bankruptcy in 1978. And in these filings, it was revealed that the Found Blue and therefore Ben Novak Sr owed over $100 million in today's money in back taxes. And of course, he could not pay this money. So he was forced to sell the hotel that was his life's work. And I really do think it was the great love of Ben Sr.'s life. He had two. The Fountain Blue was number one for sure. And I do think that Bernice was number two and he sadly lost them both. Jesse, do you know the real truth about most children's gummies? Ugh, you mean that they're actually basically candy in disguise? Yep. Many are filled with two teaspoons of sugar, unhealthy chemicals, and other gummy junk growing kids should never eat, especially with most parents not even realizing it's what they're eating. 100%. And that's why Haya was created. It's a pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin. Haya is made with zero sugar and zero gummy junk that gets stuck to tiny teeth. Yet it tastes great and is perfect for picky eaters. 
Haya fills in the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full body nourishment our kids need with a yummy taste they love. Formulated with the help of nutritional experts, it has a blend of 12 organic fruits and veggies and is supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals, including vitamin D, B12, C, zinc, folate, and many others to help support immunity, energy, brain function, mood, concentration, teeth, bones, and more. It's non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, nut-free, and just about everything free. Haya is designed for kids of all ages and sent straight to your door, so we as parents have one less thing to have to think about and remember. I feel like that's so helpful because yes, the last if thing we want to do is add something else. <laughs> I can't even tell you the times when I used to have to pick up a prescription and the CVS would be texting me and I'm like, uh, tomorrow. Okay, tomorrow again. Tomorrow yeah. again. Like the fact that it's just there makes me so happy. And I know that I've already talked about this before when we've talked about Haya, but it really breaks my heart that there's so many well-meaning parents out there, myself included. I mean, for a little while, Alden would only eat gummy vitamins that are just trying to get good nutrients into their kids and it's affecting their bodies and their teeth health. Absolutely. You said that all of those other vitamins get stuck in little kids' teeth when they come in for exams, yeah, right? Yeah, it's a big bummer. My dad sees it a lot. He says that number one is usually too much juice and not brushing, but number two is gummy vitamins. And that's something that you think that you're doing a good job. And it's kind of impossible to get a little kid to efficiently floss yes, yes. <laughs> at the age that we're dealing with in like this two to four age range. And so that's why I'm so glad that I finally found Haya. I also love the customizable bottles. You can write their name on it and there's little cute sticker icons that they can decorate the bottle with so they can really personalize it and carry it around with them. It's pretty great. Yeah, that's very Echo too. Yeah. <laughs> We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, all you have to do is go to hayahealth.com slash lovemurder. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash lovemurder and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. So Ben Jr. now doesn't have his cushy vice president job too because of course that ended. So he took his hotel expertise to Amway. Do you know anything about Amway? I don't weigh. Oh, okay. I still recall one of my schoolmates' mothers coming over to her house to sell us some Amway. Well, Amway, I believe, was one of the first multi-level marketing companies. It's, in my mind, like them and Mary Kay. Only Amway sold, I think, everything. In any case, it is currently the largest MLM in the entire world based on revenue. It's been very successful. And they would throw these big conventions and meetups all around the world. And it turned out that Ben went to work for them. He was good at sales, surprisingly. And he was really good at bartering for these big conventions and knowing how to throw them because he had grown up in a hotel. He knew exactly who to talk to. He knew exactly how to talk to somebody that is running conventions at a hotel. And so he really hit on something that he was 
very good at. And so in 1980, he actually launched his own company called Conventions Concepts Unlimited. That's a very 1980s company name. So 1980s, he definitely was on a brick phone. So Ben actually hired his mom, Bernice, to run his books for him. Cute. Yeah, she was great at it, too. They did a great job together. He had so many hotel contacts all over the country due to his family's legacy that he could negotiate great convention rates and then charge Amway or other big corporations a ton of money for him to not only negotiate that price that he knew he could get a good deal on, but then run the convention. So he would be on the scene and make sure everything went smoothly working with the hotel. Yeah. So he was doing really well. So that was pretty smart. And he also got paid in cash. He demanded that everyone pay their registration fee for the convention in cash and just put bricks of cash in his pocket. Probably not legal, but. (laughs) Well, it's also 1980. I mean, you could say we only accept cash in 1980. Crazy. Yeah. So he was doing very well. And it seemed like at least professionally he was being pretty smart. But what I don't think was smart was how he was spending a lot of this money. He was spending it all at strip clubs. And again, I am going to caveat this. I'm going to caveat this with if you have disposable income, by all means, spend it at the strip club. But again, this is a guy who has been used to being catered to, wants control, and he is specifically looking for situations where he can find women who at least pretend to acquiesce to him. Yes. And I don't think this is necessarily a healthy dynamic in looking for a life partner. Although if you want to spend your cash that way, that's on you. Yeah. Your convention cash. (laughs) Your convention cash, yes. Ben frequented a number of Florida strip clubs where he became known as a big spender who would shower his favorite girls with lots of money and free boob jobs. Uh, They're at free. He's paying for them? Well, he is paying for them. It's free to the girls who are getting the boob jobs. Well, not probably, really. They're probably paying something. Yeah, I would guess. Everybody paying something. Nothing in life is for free. Okay, so my favorite Peloton instructor. Oh, my God. Is Cody Rigsby. And he always says, like, when he's doing a hard workout or he's like, okay, now's your recovery. He's like, but you don't get this recovery for free because we are getting back on the bike. And he's like, because when you are a hot ass young person and you're going out with that old ass man on his boat, you're not getting it for free (laughs) is what he says. You're paying something. I know you're paying something. And now you've had your recovery. You got to pay in intervals. So. Basically, you're right, is what I am roundabout saying is that probably. But he was known for this. This was his thing. So on one of these trips, Ben was at, it sounds like this place wasn't like the creme de la creme. It was the Foley's International Club on the highway. What would give you that idea that it's not la creme de la creme? This wasn't the nicest place. When he met a young, bottle blonde Ecuadorian dancer, stage named Sylvia, who completely blew him away. And again, we are back here with that lightning bolt, that lightning bolt flash of attraction that is going to end in disaster for everyone. And well, for his maternal grandfather and father before him, it was just real nasty divorces. 
for Ben Jr., the consequences would be more dire. So who is this soon-to-be second Mrs. Ben Novak Jr.? Her name was Narcissa, Sierra Velez Pacheco, and she had been born on November 28, 1956, which would make her roughly the same age as Ben, though she was later accused of lying about her age, so who knows? Oh, my God. Yeah, but her alleged birth year was just about all they had in common. While Ben had been born with a silver spoon in his mouth, Narcissa, or Narcy, as she was called, was born the sixth child of farmers in Guayanquil, Ecuador. So Narcy was said to have learned and practiced voodoo as a young girl. The practice had been brought to her port city by African slaves in the 17th and 18th century. John Glatt wrote in his book, The Prince of Paradise, that as a young girl, Narcy learned voodoo spells and the various herbal mixtures for hexes and other dark arts. Later, she would claim to be a voodoo queen of the dark underground religion. Ooh. And Narcy was raised as the baby of her family. She was the youngest of six, so she was taken care of by her younger siblings. So in a similar way, she got away with a lot, but obviously had much different circumstances. Yeah. Drastically different circumstances than Ben Jr. All of Narcy's elder siblings ended up in the United States eventually, and Narcy immigrated herself in 1978 when she was 23 years old. At the time, Narcy settled in Hialeah, Florida, with her older husband, Angel Abad, and their two-year-old daughter, May. Oh, gosh. May is amazing. She is on, I think, both shows that I watched. And she did not have an easy time in life. When Angel and Narcy divorced a couple years later, little May was shipped up to Queens, New York to live with Narcy's brother, Cristobal. And I think Cristobal was probably the closest sibling to Narcy. They were the closest in age. So they were number five and number six. And they were extremely close. And Cristobal was very protective of Narcy, and he would later say that he feels like he raised May. He was the one who taught her to read. He was the one who was there for her. So while May is going to live with Narcy's brother, she went to work at a strip joint, the same one that she would later meet Ben Novak Jr. at, and John Glatt interviewed a very seasoned performer who took Narcy under her wing for his book, and she had probably the best featured performer slash stripper name I've ever heard. Her name was Big Fanny Annie. Big Fanny Annie. Big Fanny Annie. <laughs> There's a picture of her in the book, too, which I really appreciate. I'm like, John Glatt, thank you for giving me a picture of Big Fanny Annie because I really did want to know. So Big Fanny Annie said that when Sylvia, as Narcy was known as, that was her stage name, Came in, she was kind of shy. She was a sweet, very little brunette. She was skinny. She was shorter. She had a full bush. And then throughout her... <laughs> like vagina bush? It was a full nude club. Yeah, it was a full nude club. And so she's like, yeah, but you know, she learned the ropes. Like she dyed her hair bleach blonde and she started... I don't even know what the what a term for going naked down under would be. But then she started doing that because the men liked it. So she started changing. She So she bleached her bush and then she waxed it? 
No, no, no. She bleached her hair. So she went from a brunette to a blonde up top. Okay. And she went from bush to no bald bush. down yeah. below. <laughs> yes. And she also like got a tood. She learned how to like take advantage of dudes and to claim her territory. She got in fights with other girls. She came in kind of innocent and sweet and she came out like a real tigress. Is essentially what Big Fanny Annie. Yeah. She was like a bleach blonde baddie with an attitude, a coke habit, and a naked vagina by the end of it. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> I guess she was like really good at hustling men too. And Big Fanny Annie said there was like another girl that helped teach her all this stuff, but she was like, oh, you have to say, my mom's sick. I'm putting my kids through school. Like she was like, she taught her all the tricks and all the things to say just to get more money out of guys. Even law school. Yeah, do what you got to do, girl. I'm not judging you. Get that money. Yeah, and so Big Fanny Annie said that she knew Ben, and he was a regular, and she said that he was a party guy who threw around a lot of cash, and when she found out, not Narcy, when Big Fanny Annie found out that he was the heir to the Fountain Blue fortune, which he wasn't anymore, really, but that's what he told everyone, she said, quote, oh, that's good. This is the wrong place for him to be. Someone is going to latch on to him. And then she said, and obviously it was Sylvia. Wow. A.K.A. Narcy. Within months, Narcy had quit her job and was shocked up with Ben in his Pompano beach house. Little May was now eight years old, but it seemed like neither her mother or her soon-to-be stepdad were interested in parenting. Again, no example on Ben's part. I don't really know how much... Narcy's parents were involved. So May was once again sent to live with a relative, this time an aunt who lived in Naples, Florida. Less than a year into the relationship, a cop friend of Ben said that he was with Ben on his 42-foot yacht, checking out his new yacht apparently, when Narcy called screaming and threatening to burn his house down because she suspected him of cheating on her. So they are less than a year into even knowing each other at this point. I think that they had been living with each other for a handful of months at this point. And the friend said, he's pleading with her not to burn it down and to calm down. He says, no, no, don't do anything. I don't have anybody else in my life. Apparently, she was very jealous. And I thought, boy, are you in for a long fucking hard ride? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this is a cataclysmic mismatch. Narcy is fiery. She is not going to take his shit. She does not appreciate getting cheated on. And she's going to get what is owed to her and what she deserves. And Ben is never going to be faithful. Really? Never. So he was cheating on her. Oh, absolutely. That's on him. For sure. But this is a disaster waiting to happen. Because he keeps being attracted to these women who are very strong, but then he does them wrong. Yeah, and obviously this is probably going to be the one that crosses over to do something bad. It's hard when you, when your first wife that you were with kind of just was like, okay, I'm out. You know what I mean? Like he thinks that anyone is going to be like that. And Jill, it wasn't like she let him get away with his shit either. It was just totally different. Jill seemed very self-possessed. She talks about how she knew when it was time to get out of being a dancer or when it was time to stop being a showgirl. And then when it was time to get out of her relationship, it seemed like she had a lot of self-respect. 
And she was like, well, this is my line. Yeah. I'm not being respected and I'm out. And Narcy did not have, it's not that she didn't have self-respect. She had a lot of belief in herself. It's more that she wasn't going to let you get away with it. She wasn't going to say, you're not respecting me, so I'm leaving. She was going to say, you're not respecting me, so I'm going to cut your dick off. Yeah. And that literally that line comes up later on in this relationship. So around this time when Narcy moves in with Ben, Ben Sr., who was 78 at this time, died of complications following a stroke. In April of 1985, while Ben Sr. had lost a lot of his fortune, it was believed that he had squirreled away millions of the Fountain Blue money in offshore accounts. Wow. Okay. Remember he had all those mafia connections. Yeah, I know. But like the government. in Miami. You owe the government $100 million. Like any money that gets transferred in, it's going to get taken, right? You would think so. So we don't know exactly how much money Ben Sr. had or how much he gave to his son. But we do know that officially Ben received the lion's share of whatever Ben Sr. had left. He gave some money to his sister. He did provide very well for Bernice. And people said at the end of his life that Bernice was absolutely the one who got away. She was the great love of his life and the only woman who could really get under his skin. And so he ended up giving Bernice basically an allowance, it sounds like. So she would get the modern day equivalent of $6,700 a month until she died Okay, through a trust. And Ben Jr. was getting a trust that paid him the modern day equivalent of one hundred and sixty grand a year. Plus, he got an additional lump sum of $2.7 million in today's money, as well as all of Ben Sr.'s belongings. And I think some of them were very valuable. And then again, we don't know if there was any additional funds hidden in any way. And also, this is really rough. I guess that his adopted son from his first marriage, who was legally his child, had, while Ben was running around this hotel like a little prince, the first son was forced to work in a bellhop type role and never acknowledged as a child. And then in the will, he was given one single dollar. So he wasn't allowed to contest the will. Wow, that's so fucked up. It's really fucked up. He ended up living on the streets. But also that poor child was literally working in the hotel and watching Ben Jr. run around like a little prince. Well, he also didn't really have parents and then ended up being unhoused for most of his life. Oh my God, that's so sad. I am just saying this story is so much more than just a true crime story. It is a tragedy. It is a Shakespearean tragedy of generations. Do you see what I'm talking about now? Greek tragedy with Narcissia. <laughs> yes, it is. Absolutely. So now Narcy is with Ben and he is all the richer because of this, but he was actually making great money by himself at this point. Now, this is still in, I think, the 80s. Yeah, this is 1985 when Ben Sr. died. But by the early 2000s, Ben's company, at least he said, he reported that it was making 50 million dollars a year. And that's not adjusted for today's money. He said it back in the early 2000s. That's how much money his company was making. And he's still with Narcy at this point in time? 
Yes. Wow. So they've been together for like 15 plus years. They were together for a long time. So he is doing great. And at that point, around the time that his father died and they're settling the estate, that's when the topic of marriage obviously came up because she had been living with him for quite a while. He did end up proposing to her and they set a date for August 1991. Okay. They've been together for a while at this point, but the day before the wedding and people are coming to this wedding. The invitations are out. All the plans are made. The day before the wedding, he dropped a prenup in her lap and said, I'm not getting married to you if you don't sign this. Can you imagine? Why would he do it the day before? That's so fucked up. Because he wanted to force her into signing it. It was not good terms. The term stated that if they divorced before 10 years, she got nothing. She was legally obligated to get nothing. And if they stayed together past a decade, he would only be required to give her $65,000, which to be fair, in today's money is more like $145,000. That was the equivalent of 1991. But I don't know if they upgrade the prenup to include inflation. So it might just be whenever it happens, $65,000. Oh my God. So this is not a good prenup. If in the early 2000s, this guy is making $50 million a year and he has this trust fund as well, that she is going to potentially walk away at any point with just $65,000 after being married for 10 years. So crazy. And they've already been together for so long. At that point, they had met in 1983 and they were getting married in 91. Yeah. So eight years. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that he trusted relationships based on his parents and his grandparents. I mean, all of the examples that he saw were not healthy examples of marriage. And I don't know if people around him were telling him that he had to have a prenup like this to prove that she loved him. I don't know why he sprung it on her so late. Yeah. It's definitely not cool. That's manipulative. It's very manipulative. It's very controlling. And also, Bernice was really not into this match. Okay. Yeah, like she didn't love Jill, but she really didn't like Narcy. And she had even tried to talk to some of Ben's friends into trying to get him to call it off, but he wouldn't. So both sides of this are not looking good going into this marriage. So right around the wedding, Narcy's daughter May became a young mother herself at the age of 16. It was like three months after the wedding, Narcy became a grandmother. She had a second son sometime pretty shortly after there. But surprisingly, Narcy became a pretty good grandmother. And this was very hard for May. She had a lot of complicated feelings about her mom. She would say that her mother was not there for a lot of her childhood. And when she was, she was very physically abusive. Okay. So she didn't have a great experience growing up with Narcy. And then she's watching her be a good grandmother. She's being a good grandmother, but at the same time, she now has all of this opulent wealth. So they were living in a 6,000 square foot, beautiful home that's like on a canal. And they had multiple yachts and vacation properties. They're making all this money in this company. And she was a struggling single mother who was working multiple service industry jobs to make ends meet. So it's like she's being a caring grandmother, but at the same time, you're now living this high life and I'm still struggling because you didn't help raise me essentially or you weren't kind to me growing up. 
So there was a lot of complicated feelings all around in this relationship. And they always had a pretty tense relationship. But eventually, as the boys got older, they became more interested in Ben's Batman memorabilia, which was a big part of his life. And he had these grandkids that at his age were kind of like sons because he wasn't super duper old. And both Narcy and May had obviously had children pretty young. So it was like the kids he had never had almost, even though they were his technically step-grandchildren. And the whole family started warming up together and he offered May a job. She would actually go on to work for the convention company with him and do an incredible job. That's great. Yes. And so May was great at her job and she actually found a pal in Bernice. So it's like the two generations so who didn't funny. really like Narcy teaming up against Narcy, whom they both did not care for. <laughs> wow. That's so crazy. Should we just end the story there? Yeah. It would be great if it was like, and then everyone was a happy family. And I think honestly, I'm trying desperately not to speak so badly about Ben Jr., but if he could have kept it in his pants, I think it might have been. Oh, my God. What happened? Oh, no. It would have been less rough, let's just say that. But he was a cheater. He was a philanderer. And for the most part, he did try to cover his tracks. He had some sort of employee that would talk to all the girls for him and then transmit the messages or would pay for them to for things and it couldn't be traced back to Ben somehow. But Narcy was very street smart and she had a lot of women's intuition and she knew something was up. In June of 2002, when the couple had been married for almost 11 years at that point, because they got married in August, Narcy decided to teach Ben a lesson. At one in the morning on a Sunday, three armed men broke into their house and to Ben's horror and shock, Narcy warned the intruders that Ben had a gun in his nightstand and told them to take the gun. She then got up, disabled the security system, and told Ben, as he was getting tied up by three men, that if he moved an inch, she was going to cut off his penis and throw it in the canal like Lorena Bobbitt. She orchestrated a home invasion. Ben was held at gunpoint for 25 hours, allowed to occasionally relieve himself in a disposable urinal that was taped to his chair. What? Yeah, you do not want to mess with this woman. While he was being held at gunpoint, and by the way, he's taped to this chair, Narcy ransacked their home. She stole what Ben would later claim was nearly a half million dollars in cash from his safe as well as priceless family heirlooms. And before she left, Narcy told her philandering husband the following, if I can't have you, then no one will have you. The men that helped me, they will come back and finish the job. And I just want you to know that I can have you killed anytime I want. You're only not dead because I stopped them. Oh my God. Yeah, it was super screwed up too because she told him that she was going to leave but alert a neighbor that he was tied up inside. But instead, she called a friend of hers who was a yoga instructor. I think that's how they met. And said, I need you to go to my house and move something out for me because I'm not home. And I think movers are coming and something's going to happen and you have to get over there. 
And instead, this poor woman walked in and was doing her friend a favor and found this man who's been tied up with a disposable urinal full of, I can only imagine, in his underwear. Okay, so did she not come back? No, she went, she was like off doing something. And so this poor woman like moved. She was like, I'm not going to live here anymore and I'm not going to be friends with this person. It was very traumatizing for her. So Ben and Bernice went to the police and he's like, she stole all my money. It was definitely her. She didn't even try to hide it. She said all those things to me. And Bernice, who is now in her early 80s, was like, I also have something to tell you, police. We had been at the office together only hours before this home invasion. And I think my daughter-in-law tried to poison me. So before she did the home invasion, she tried to poison sweet 80-year-old Bernice. She said in, in the police report that they had been working at the office together and Bernice had a water bottle and she'd been drinking water out of it continuously. And she got up at some point and then she came back and then Narcy left. But then when she took a sip after Narcy left, she said that it felt weird, like she had a burning feeling in her mouth. And then she said within hours, and this is from the police report, her entire mouth was numb. She produced that water bottle, which had a small amount of liquid still in it. And she stated that she is certain she was poisoned. And at the time that they were going to the police, which now had been quite a few hours, her mouth was still numb. So Narcy was taken into custody, of course. And she said that Ben was tied up because he enjoyed sexual bondage and it was a regular part- Of their sex play. She accused him of a lot of very weird stuff, which may or may not be true. Jill, his first wife, said that their sex life was pretty vanilla, that they maybe watched a porno once or twice while having sex, but it was nothing out of the ordinary. Pornography. (laughs) Yeah, she said that was the wildest to God. Wow. But Narcy made some very detailed accusations about... Ben's interests, including that he was into amputee porn or maybe even underage amputee porn. That is so niche. Very niche. She said it was because of, I don't know, meeting a child amputee at the hotel when he was a child, and that was where his interest blossomed. So she's just fucking with him. I don't know. She said at some point she found photos of amputees. I don't know. I do not, I do not know. I don't. I don't know if that's true. Jill said that she experienced nothing like that. And as far as I know, no other lovers came forward with similar claims. And one thing she definitely seemed like she was lying about was that she was a victim of domestic abuse. Okay. No one else saw that. Also, Narcy never said that she was until the police came for her for orchestrating a home invasion. And then she was like, he's into all this weird sex and he makes me do all these terrible things and he also hits me and I've just been through a lot. Also, she did say, well, he says I took like $500,000. I really only took $5,000 and we're married, so it's my money. (laughs) So basically what she said. So the cops, of course, are wanting none of this. They don't want to be involved in any of this mess at this time. At one point, Ben's like, okay, I'm not going to press charges, but tell her she has to give me back my money. And she also has to do X, Y, and Z or something. And they're like, you know what? Get your attorneys for this. The police are not supposed to be handling 
this matter between you two right now. And oh it, the details are disturbing and disgusting about your personal life. And I would like to remove myself from this narrative. Oh, my God. Is essentially <laughs> what law enforcement was like at this point. How does he feel about law enforcement now? <laughs> Well, that was the other thing is that he's like, right, we're all buddies. And they're like, no, no, we aren't. Nope, nope, nope. He did agree to drop the charges if she would give back the money, although we still don't know how much she really took. And he did start looking for a divorce attorney, and he said he began divorce proceedings against Darcy, but he was not going to press criminal charges. Okay. However, at some point during all of this, they got back together. Oh. <laughs> Which is extraordinary to me. So maybe, I mean, if I was a cop, I'd be like, maybe what she said was right. Maybe. I think if I was a cop, I'd say they're both crazy. <laughs> and this is not going to end well, but I, I don't know who's wrong or who's right. Yeah, no, I think don't. everyone's wrong and no one's right. They got back together. They did see a marital counselor for a little while. And there, I think that there was some rules or conduct that they were supposed to follow in order to be together. But I'm only thinking about Bernice at this point, who's like, you're what? You're getting – she she poisoned me. I'm 80 years old and she poisoned me. That would have been very disappointing for me as a mother if a woman poisoned me and my son still got back together with her <laughs> after – threatening to cut off his penis and holding him hostage for 25 hours. So they're back together and things seem to go well. I mean, maybe he really wasn't cheating for a little while because when Ben turned 50 in January of 2006, so this is three and a half, four years after the home invasion, he changed his will to say that Narcy would get absolutely everything from his estate and that his will would supersede their prenuptial agreement. So if he dies, she doesn't just get $65,000. She gets everything. However, there's one catch. If Ben's now 83-year-old mother was still alive when he died, she survived him, then Bernice gets everything. Oh, I see where this is going. Mm-hmm. So she would get the bulk of his estate and Narcy would only get 200 grand and half of the equity of the house they share. In total? Yeah, if Bernice is still alive when Ben dies. And if Narcy dies as well, then actually May and her two sons would get a considerable cut. Oh, he wrote them in there. He did. I think it was collectively, with her sons getting more, actually, than even May, something like around a million dollars collectively. Wow. Yes. So he wanted to make sure that even if Narcy had passed, that May and her sons were taken care of. So Narcy, of course, took it as a victory and a good sign that Ben had amended his will for her. And at this point, of course, Bernice is 83. She's not exactly in the bloom of youth. Certainly, it would seem that Narcy was going to eventually inherit everything. But if they got divorced, Narcy was still just going to end up with that 65K. But if Ben did not divorce Narcy when she literally held him hostage and poisoned his mother, what could possibly ever make Ben divorce Narcy? And there's only one answer to that question, and it's love. 
Makes the world go round, Andrea. Wait, does he fall in love with someone else? Yes. Oh my God, no. Oh yes, and it's even more tragic. In mid-2008, Ben responded to, essentially it sounds like some sort of back page ad, some sort of web advertisement for sex. And the woman who was advertising was a sex worker and porn actress named Rebecca Bliss, who charged the modern-day equivalent of $425 an hour for her time. She said that their first date was just sex, and Rebecca was paid $600. But the two began talking and eventually, inexplicably, fell in love. Sure. So I think he is 52 at this point, and she is just about 40 or just about to turn 40. Okay. So she's older. Yep. She's older, and Rebecca had had a really, really hard life. So she was very heavily tattooed and pierced. So this is a departure from his normal showgirl look. Skinny big boob, yeah. Yeah. She's giving suicide girls. Yes, she's giving hella suicide girls. She's very pretty. But she had had a really hard go at it in life. She had lost custody of her only child. And she had lost a career that she loved as a tattoo artist when an ex-boyfriend shot her three times in her right hand and leg. Uh, what? Yes. So she had previously in her life, when she was trying to make child support payments for her daughter, worked in porn under the name Mona Love. And she had actually gotten out of that and was a tattoo artist, and she loved it when an abusive, terrible boyfriend shot her in her dominant tattooing hand and horrifying, shattered her dream. Then she was left with nothing, so she moved to Miami where she got into sex work, which is how she found Ben. Okay. So he meets this woman, and there's some sort of really interesting spark here between the two of them. And within weeks of having these hours-long conversations on the phone, Ben puts Rebecca up in a swanky luxury apartment in a gated community. He bought her a toy poodle. He paid for thousands of dollars of expensive spa treatments. Apparently, there was a spa in this apartment complex. Okay. And he just paid for her to get treatments all day. And he gave her many expensive gifts. According to Rebecca Bliss, the two began to make serious plans to build a life together. They connected on some deep level. And he's been with Narcy for over two decades. And this is finally the woman that he wants to leave her for after all this time. So Ben also wanted to get her set up with a new career. He ended up buying her over $10,000 of DJ equipment, like sound equipment, because that was going to be her new career. Okay. In a previous life, Andy was also a DJ, but not set up by her sugar daddy, just because she was really good at it, I would like to say. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you would be terrible at having a sugar daddy. You'd be like, I don't need you to pay for that for me. You barely let your husband pay for stuff for you. I would be the worst, yes. They would be like, go away. <laughs> so while he is having this new love with Rebecca Bliss, he's having bliss with Rebecca Bliss, 
At the same time, Ben actually moved May and her now teenage sons into his guest house on this compound that he lived with Narcy. And he began to prepare for May to take over Narcy's responsibilities with the company. Okay. Now, this is a hard pill to swallow for Narcy because she had done a lot of work for the company. And we have to give her credit where credit is due because she expanded a lot of the convention business to a Hispanic crowd and to a Spanish-speaking crowd. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so she definitely was instrumental in that part of his business that exploded, especially in Southern Florida. So I would feel pretty raw about this if I was Narcy too, that I was potentially only going to get $65,000 after I had been with this guy for over two decades and I had helped him build up his company and he's already angling to replace me both in the marital bed, but also with her daughter. So the daughter's living on the compound now as well, May. And Narcy did find this out. So I don't know if she hired somebody or if she did her own detective work, but she found out about Rebecca. May said that her mother began to light candles as part of voodoo ceremonies, and she also began plotting against her stepfather. By this time, May and Ben had grown pretty close. He had no children of his own biologically, so May and her sons were basically what he considered his heirs. And he wanted to eventually hand down the business to May, who, like I said, had grown very adept at running it. He admitted the affair to May. So he's telling his wife's (sighs) daughter. No. About Rebecca. And he did say to her, though, don't worry. I'm going to divorce your mother, but I will always take care of you. I will always take care of you and the boys. That's why I want you here. I want you running the business. You'll be taken care of, even if I'm not married to your mother. In early September, Narcy contacted the FBI. And she told the FBI, she actually met with an agent. She said that Ben, her husband, was using his convention company as a front to arrange sham marriages between foreign convention goers and sex workers who were going to get paid to get into 90-day fiancé marriages. Got it. Okay. Yeah, this was not true. So she was just trying to get Ben and... Rebecca in trouble. And she said, yes, in fact, I know about one that's going on right now. If you look up this address, there's a woman named Rebecca Bliss who's living in this apartment my husband's paying for. And he's paying for that apartment because she is one of the sex worker brides. And you should look into it because they're both trying to deceive you. And also there's this guy who works for him, which was the guy that was the go-between between Ben and all of his mistresses who is giving him baseball-sized amounts of cocaine. So definitely arrest that guy, too. Is that true? No. I I mean, I don't think so. I really don't. I only heard that Narcy did some when she was dancing at the club. Okay. I did not hear about Ben ever taking drugs. I mean, he was just really into, like, his Batman collectibles. Yeah. So I don't know if he was hitting the rails hard. So the FBI kind of looked into this, but they said that they found it completely not credible and no action was taken, much to Narcy's chagrin. In January of 2009, Narcy managed to get Rebecca's phone number because Ben had bought a burner phone for her, I believe. 
And she would call Rebecca repeatedly until she got her on the phone. And she offered Rebecca $10,000 to never speak to her husband again. Rebecca said, hell no, we are in love. Back off, bitch. And Narcy said, he doesn't love you. He has other girls. You should take the money and run because we are not getting divorced. I'm not giving him up. And rather ominously, if I can't have him, no one will. Yeah. When someone says that, you know you're in trouble. And now this is number two. She said it once during a home invasion that she set up. And now she's saying it to his mistress. Yeah, she's just reminding them that bad things could happen. So Rebecca blocked Narcy's number, and then Narcy called the apartment complex's manager and told the manager that her husband had died and he would no longer be able to pay for Rebecca's rent. So cut her off and kick her out. And the manager (laughs) said, okay, I just need a death certificate to get you out of your lease. Can you send me his death certificate? And Ben, at this time, was not dead and... She never heard from Narcy again. Meanwhile, time was kind of running out for Narcy. So Ben had just hired a new divorce attorney, which, by the way, I guess the divorce attorney, this one, quit because he was threatened by Narcy and some man that Narcy either hired or was related to. So the first divorce attorney quit because he was threatened. He's like, bye. Yeah, he was trying to move forward with finally divorcing Narcy. And Narcy was not going to be left with a piddly chump change when it was estimated at this time Ben was worth something between 7 to $10 million. In December of 2008, while Ben was planning a life with Rebecca, Narcy was planning something else completely. And she was making it a family affair by bringing her brother Cristobal into the plot. No. One big problem... For Narcy was that Bernice was still alive and well. And she's like 90. She was at this point 86 or 87. And if she knocked off Ben, it was all for naught because Bernice was going to inherit everything. And she was going to give her money to a Jewish charity. So tough shit ski, Narcy. But luckily for Narcy, in the sense of a motivational speaker saying, you make your own luck, Bernice began to experience a set of unfortunate accidents. Okay, here we go. Poor Bernice. So sad. So Bernice, first of all, reported that she felt like she was being followed. She felt like somebody was outside her windows. At first, no one else was corroborating this. But on February 11th, 2009, two guys did attempt to break into Bernice's home when they threw a ornamental cast iron garden frog through her window. Rabbit. And her neighbor was apparently a former linebacker for the Miami Dolphins. And his son was playing piano when he witnessed these guys skulking around and he called his dad and was like, hey, humongous daddy, get out there. And get these guys who are creeping on our elderly neighbor. And I guess the two of them scared these guys off. They called the police and they gave witness statements. And Bernice was obviously terrified. But the police only considered it an act of vandalism. Because all they did was throw the frog through the window. So I don't know if they were taking this very seriously. On March 28th of 2009, Bernice, now very worried about everything, her safety, her possessions, 
was taking her prized five-carat diamond ring that she had been given from Ben Sr. to the Bank of America where she had a safety deposit box when she tripped on her way into the bank. Now, this wasn't anyone else's doing. She just fell, but she fell straight on her face, and she was pretty badly injured. I think at this point she was 87 years old, and obviously these things happen. And despite her injuries, she still went into the bank and deposited the ring. And when she finally got a hold of Ben, she refused to go to the hospital, although he eventually insisted upon it. And she went to work the next day. I mean, this is some greatest generation shit right here because she was like, you're not going to stop me. I'm still getting up at six in the morning, doing my calisthenics, and I'm going to work, even though she was a wreck. Yeah. So Ben was very upset about this. He had his man, the man that paid all the women, go to the Bank of America and take pictures to see if he could sue them for negligence because his mother had gotten into this horrible accident. And he was very concerned about Bernice at this point. And he had a good right to be because only days later, beautiful until the day she died, Bernice was found dead in the garage of her Fort Lauderdale home on April 4th, 2009. In the garage? In her garage. Her injuries were very severe. Later, someone would say that they were consistent with being hit with the force of falling two stories on your face. What? Her teeth and mouth were all smashed up. There was blood everywhere. But given the scene where it had happened in her garage, her recent history of falls. So she already had some prior injuries, her age of 87, and the fact that there were multiple prescription bottles in her home, as well as a full glass of white wine or a bottle that was next to a glass or something that looked like she had maybe been mixing prescription medication with alcohol. The medical examiner's board, because it was a group of people, ultimately decided that it seemed like she had gotten intoxicated. She had maybe went to her car. It looked like she had fallen and hit her face on some part of her car and then gone straight down to the cement. That's what they believed. Now, there was one dissenting doctor who said, absolutely no way this is a fall. This is not consistent with a fall. Absolutely not. But he was more junior level and he was outranked and they did rule that this was an accidental fall in her own home. So after her death, she had not changed her will at that point to give everything to a Jewish charity like she told her sister she was going to do. I guess she had started the paperwork but hadn't finished it. So Ben Jr. got her estate, which was worth around $2 million at the time. So her sister Maxine suspected immediately that something was deeply wrong about Bernice's death, especially because they were seeming to imply that she was some decrepit fall down drunk is what it felt like the papers were saying, what the medical examiner was saying. And she said that she knew for a fact Bernice did not drink alone, that she enjoyed a glass of wine here and there, but she would have her neighbor over. She was old school like that. She was like, you don't drink alone. So she's like, this doesn't make any sense. Somebody would have had to be there or this was a setup. Just something doesn't seem right. But no one else thought that anything was wrong. 
even Ben was very much just in a weird period of grief. And he was like, well, I guess maybe that makes sense. She had just fallen down. So he wasn't really questioning it that much either. So no one really questioned it until three months later when another fatality would occur in the Novak family. And this one would unmistakably be a murder. After Bernice's death, Ben took stock of what was important in his life. He and May had agreed to officially become father and daughter. Essentially, May said that after Bernice's death, she said, we've talked about this for years. Do you want to officially adopt me? And he was touched because with Bernice's passing, he didn't have any close relatives at that point. And how old is she? I mean, she's an adult. She has teenage kids. It's just, this is something that people do, which is very touching. Like, um, you know my ex who is a lot older than me, the restaurateur? Yeah. He was raised by a man who was not his biological father, and they didn't ask him to adopt him until he and his siblings were in their 40s. Oh. Yeah. And at that point, it was extremely emotional and very touching. So this is something that occurs later in life for people. And I think that for Ben, at least, it sounds like he was setting up a situation in which she was really his heir because he was about to cut Narcy off. So after his mom dies, he gets serious about getting the divorce. So in one way, he is seeking to legally dissolve a union and then with May, he's looking to solidify legally a relationship and be bound to her. So those were two important things to him, but they were also two things that would never happen because before they could, on the morning of Sunday, July 12th, Ben Novak was discovered brutally murdered in a Hilton hotel in Rybrook, New York. You know it's July 12th, right? Oh my gosh, I didn't even realize that. That was one of those weird tricks of fate because I had actually moved our schedule around a little bit based on wanting to tell this story. Wow. So that's so weird. So the day we're recording this is yeah. July 12th. So what happened? The couple and May, as well as many of their employees, were in Rybrook, which is a suburb near New York City, at an Amway convention. Now, this was a very large convention. It was unexpectedly large. They were supposed to get 1,200 people and they got 1,900. Wow, okay. So the hotel was pretty overburdened at this point, but May apparently crushed it and the hotel was very happy with how they were running this convention because they were beyond capacity, but everything was going smoothly. And another employee actually said, that Ben, at the end of a 16-hour day of running this convention, said that he was very proud of May and that he was excited to consider retiring and having May go to all these conventions and run the day-to-day -day operations. Okay. So it's not just May saying that she was the heir apparent. It looks like he really did feel this way about her. So they ended up collecting $110,000 in cash from the convention goers that Saturday. And the employees said that there was a protocol of certain employees would take it in the, the blue bank bag and they would put it in their hotel room safe. So several people like split this up essentially. But of course, 
Narcy and Ben had some portion of this money in their own safe. According to Hotel Keycard Records, Ben and Narcy returned to their suite at 12.07 in the morning. At 7.19 in the morning the next day, seven hours later, Narcy called May and offered to help with the Sunday breakfast service. And May was pleasantly surprised by this offer. This was not something that Narcy usually offered. In fact, Ben was a super night owl. He usually worked deep into the night and then Narcy and Ben would sleep in on a Sunday. But again, this was a convention that was overburdened. So May was like, great, come down, help me out. Where are you? What's going on? Let's see it. So by the time May came down, some 20 minutes later, Narcy was already talking to somebody who worked at the hotel who had said that they had run out of China bowls and plates and coffee cups, et cetera, and that they were going to have to use plastic. And Narcy knew that this was something that Ben was not going to approve of. So she was like, I guess I got to go and tell your stepdad and he's going to be really unhappy about it. And then there was a witness that saw her getting rid of something that was in the suitcase. So we know that during this period, she told May that she had to go to the bathroom. Another witness saw her taking a suitcase out and exit. So it seems like there was some evidence in this suitcase at the time that went out a door and was taken away by an accomplice. After she got rid of the suitcase, she went back up to the suite where she'd been staying with Ben and she used the key card again at 7.45 in the morning and she gained entry to the room. It was then that Narcy said that she basically walked into the room and was saying, Novak, you're not going to like this and tripped over his dead body. Oh my God. That's what she said happened. She said she had no idea what happened. She had been out of the room for maybe 45 minutes, 45 minutes an hour trying to get breakfast ready, she said at that point. She was hysterical. She said, I don't know what's going on. How could this happen to me? My husband, my husband is dead. When May went to go see her, she said, he's dead. Your stepdad is dead. I don't know what happened. But a few things would later stand out to May and then, of course, the police. Number one was that Narcy, for some reason, suggested that Ben had maybe had a heart attack when it was an undeniably gruesome and bloody scene. And he was duct taped in his underwear. So absolutely not was this a heart attack. He was also lying face down in a, a pool of blood. I mean, this was very clearly not a heart attack. And then two, she told May that she had tripped over her husband and then gone to him and tried to revive him and had held him. But May thought about it later and realized that there hadn't been a single drop of blood on Narcy. So she's like, how did you hold him or try to revive him when he was covered in blood? And a police officer on one of the shows I watched said that it was a particularly brutal and bloody crime scene. Yeah, and she doesn't have anything on her. She has nothing on her. So right away, May's alarm is going off. And when the medical examiner eventually autopsied Ben, they found, oh my gosh, this is a rough one, guys. This is not really a trigger warning. It's just kind of brutal. 
But they found that Ben's head, quote, had every kind of blunt force injury as well as sharp injuries and lacerations. It looked as though he had been hit repeatedly with a dumbbell because there was an imprint in several places. He had so many fractures to his ribs that the medical examiner said that his ribs resembled smashed chicken bones. And he also had contusions to his brain and his lungs. But I think that the worst injury, the one that makes me feel sick to my stomach, is that it seemed that somebody had gouged out both of his eyes with a knife while he was still alive. How can he tell that? I think by the way the blood flows. Ugh. There was actually a part in the John Glatt book where the medical examiner was explaining how an eyeball looks after it's been okay. gouged um, out. Yeah. Goodness. And I, yeah, so I I'm <laughs> I, don't, I didn't think you'd want to know, but yeah, if you're really interested, there's Read ways the to know if it's, <laughs> yeah, post or pre-mortem here. But unbelievably, none of this stuff was what killed him. The killer or killers had placed duct tape around his mouth. So when he suffered these catastrophic injuries, he had vomited and then he had choked on his own vomit because his mouth was duct tape shut. No matter how much Ben had made poor choices and he had been a philanderer in his life, no one deserves to go out like this. So unfortunately, there was not a security camera directly on the sweet store. So they did not know who was coming and going at this time. But the police were able to pull the key card record and they could see that Narcy and Ben had used their key card to get into the room just after midnight. But then no one had used a key card to get in at all until Narcy went in at 7.45 in the morning, which means that either Ben or Narcy had let the killer or killers in. Yeah, or Narcy's the killer. Or Narcy's the killer. Now, Narcy tried to say, well, I don't think the door closed behind me. So maybe somebody could have gotten in. Because the door was ajar. Or maybe he let somebody in. Right away, she had a lot of answers. She had a lot of answers. Oh, you know, he has a lot of enemies. He's pissed off a lot of people. I think he might be up to illegal things. Also, weird sex stuff. He loves weird sex stuff. And I think I left the door ajar. They also found part of some cheap knockoff sunglasses, which did end up belonging to one of the killers. And they were asking why this multimillionaire had these cheap <laughs> knockoff broken sunglasses. And she was like, oh, you know, those were mine. So the fact that she had just an answer for everything was suspicious. Yeah. The fact that obviously no one else had access to this room, suspicious. She said she'd take a polygraph. She failed it. Her daughter would later say that she failed a polygraph five times in a row. Yikes. So that's suspicious. Everything that May was feeling and thinking, also suspicious. And she also suggested that maybe it was a burglary because they did have all that money in the safe and a lot of their employees did as well. So maybe somebody knew about it. But he had a very valuable Rolex that was still in the room. Yeah. 
So that didn't make any sense. The only thing that was taken was a bracelet he had that spelled out Ben and Diamonds, which we will come to find out Narcy had somebody take to make it look like a robbery, but then left his much more valuable Rolex there for some reason. So none of this is coming together. The police immediately knew she was a suspect and they started working with the Florida police to keep an eye on her when she went back. So May is also doing her own detective work. So she flies back and now she's living on the compound because she was living in the guest house. And she's like, I'm going to get into my stepdad's office and I'm going to start looking for some clues to see what my mom was doing and if she had any information about this. So while she's doing that, Narcy, by the way, also has flown back to Florida and she's trying to clear out safety deposit boxes trying to start draining the joint accounts for money just in case, I don't know, she gets caught with something, she wants cash. So she's trying to take out all the money. Then she comes home from raiding all their bank accounts and finds her daughter in her dead husband's study Mm -hmm. and knows that she's snooping. So Narcy got a crowbar and starts attacking her own daughter. Oh, my God. So May was able to fight her off and the two women are fighting and the police were called and the police said that when they showed up to the Novak compound, May was running out and saying, my mama killed my daddy. My mama killed my daddy. She was just hysterical and she's screaming. You have to arrest her. She killed my stepfather. Take her away. So at that point, May was very certain that her mother had killed Ben, and she was a little concerned that she was maybe next at this point. Yeah, I mean, if she's chasing her around with her crowbar. A crowbar. So she ended up suing her in a civil suit, saying that the courts needed to stop her from inheriting Ben Novak's wealth because she was, in fact, the killer. Now, obviously, Narcy did not take too kindly to that. This was not a banner moment in their relationship. And this ends up leading to some complications later because May was not entitled to any money from Ben's estate at this point. Narcy's kicking her out of the compound, of course, and she doesn't want to live with her anyway. She has no place to go and she has no place that's safe because she's now worried that her mother's going to have her killed. And a police officer a detective, a female detective, actually gave her, I think, something like five grand of her own money to get her into a safe apartment with her children. But this comes up later in court as a bad thing, that they were somehow buying May's testimony. Oh, my God. I know. When she was just doing the right thing to make sure that a person that she cared about, who was brave, was safe. Well, May was clearly not the only person who thought that Narcy had killed Ben because the Miami police also received an anonymous letter that would eventually blow the whole case wide open. The letter was received by the Miami police on July 21st, and it was written in Spanish. It claimed that Narcy and her brother Cristobal had masterminded a murderous plot to inherit the entire Novak fortune. The letter writer said, that not only had the siblings murdered Ben, they had stalked and murdered Bernice, and they were not done. There was one more victim on the list, Narcy's own daughter, May. Wow. Who stood to potentially inherit if Narcy 
was convicted and could not inherit. The letter writer wrote, and this is in translated English, I am a person who had heard rumors, but true without a doubt. I write out of respect for God and the precious life of human beings. These murders were undoubtedly committed by the wife of Mr. Novak and her brother. Together they killed his mother, Mrs. Bernice Novak, in the most ruthless way with an overdose of medication to make her mad or extremely nervous. That night, they went to her house. The daughter-in-law had keys to the house and had taken the cellular phone. They beat her up so bad that she could not call her son, Ben. The killers assassinated the defenseless old woman that they had pursued for months. For weeks, they had scared her through the windows and doors. The letter writer knew that Bernice Novak had fallen a week before her death and had been in a hospital. That's what made the murderer's crime so perfect, the anonymous correspondent wrote, adding that the killers had laughed at the police for failing to realize that Bernice had been murdered. The letter warned that Narcy and her brother would stop at nothing to get their hands on the Novak millions. This woman is related to other crimes. She's also highly dangerous, ruthless, and ambitious for Mr. Ben Novak's money. This woman should not be at liberty at home. Her daughter is innocent and could be the next victim. Protect her. It would turn out that the letter writer was actually Narcy and Cristobal's older sister. Whoa, that just gave me chills. Yes. And she had also called Maxine and tried to warn her in broken English that they were going to kill Bernice. And she was apparently a very religious woman. And so she was just not going to let this stand, even if it meant her two youngest siblings were going to go to jail. Yeah, well, they're trying to kill her niece. Yeah. This blew the whole case wide open because now they know who to look at. So they go to Cristobal's house. Well, first of all, they also searched Narcy's house and they found the same duct tape that had been used on Ben. Yeah. But when they paid Cristobal a visit... This dumbass apparently had a bunch of Western Union transfers out on his table in front of the police. And it showed that he was transferring big sums of money to oh three different guys. So they're like, oh, we're just going to take a little look at these. Thanks. Wow. And it would turn out that those were three of their accomplices. Alejandro Gutierrez Garcia, Joel Gonzalez, and Dennis Ramirez, who I think was just the getaway driver. Yeah. They would also find Cristobal and two of these men on the video camera, the security cameras in the lobby of the Hilton. And later, all of their cell phones would be able to be tracked to the Hilton. So they were all there. And also, once they caught these guys, all of the accomplices made deals and completely confessed to their crimes. And the crimes are really horrifying. The one guy, Garcia, who's a real gnarly looking guy, he looks like he's been through the bringer. And I think he had lost his eye in a fight or something. So he was a tough looking individual. And I believe Garcia was the one who spilled, but I think all three of them really talked. Everyone but Narcy and Cristobal eventually gave evidence. And what they did to Bernice was so terrible. Apparently, Garcia drank two bottles of rum to himself. He was given the, the keys by Narcy after they had tried to break in and kill her before and scare her. And he was waiting in her garage. So she pulled her car in and she got out and he attacked her with a monkey wrench, hit her repeatedly in the face. He said he was drunk. He didn't remember how much he even hit her. And they would say later that she was obviously shocked and disoriented because 
it seems he left her for dead. And then she had crawled into her house. At one point, it looks like she lost control of her bowels. Then she tried to clean herself up. And then she tried to get to her security system to hit a panic button, which was, I think, closer to where she'd been in the garage and collapsed and succumbed to her injuries. But they admitted to doing that to an 87-year-old woman. Wildly insane. After the life she had lived. And she was still working at that age and had meaningful relationships. It's a very, very sad story. In Ben's case, the three killers, Cristobal, Garcia, and Joel Gonzalez, were summoned to the hotel room by Narcy at 6.39 in the morning. And the cops could verify all of this based on their cell records. Just before 7 in the morning, Narcy let the men into the suite. They removed, it sounds like most of their clothes except for their boxer shorts because they didn't want to get blood on their clothing because they're going to have to walk through the hotel to leave. And then they had a backpack that had dumbbells in it. And that was indeed the weapon they used to beat Ben Novak with. Then she led them into the bedroom where he was sleeping in his boxer shorts. And they just started beating the shit out of him. And Joel Gonzalez, I think, was a lot younger. He was a pretty young kid. And he started getting sick and he ran out into the other room where Narcy was standing and she screamed at him to get back in there. But she was mad because he was making noise. So at that point, they held Ben down and they duct taped him so that he could not fight back and he would stop screaming. And the three men beat him with these dumbbells. And Garcia would later say that it was Narcy who had demanded that he cut Ben's eyes out, she said that she wanted to make sure that he would never see again, which might have something to do with his wandering eye. Oh, my God. So the original plan was that Narcy was supposed to be roughed up and tied up and found with Ben in the hotel room and say that they had been burgled. Okay. But Narcy at the last minute said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be tied up and I don't want to be hit. So I'm just going to leave. And I'll figure it out. Wow. And it seems likely when that witness saw her getting rid of the suitcase, there were cell phones and obviously maybe the dumbbells or something in this suitcase that she was getting out to, they believe, the getaway driver at that point. So everyone was arrested. The three accomplices pled to lesser sentences in exchange for their testimony. And Narcy and her brother maintained their innocence. They were tried together in federal court in White Plains, New York in 2012. Their defense was that May was the one who had masterminded the whole plot because with Narcy out of the way, May believed that she was going to get everything. And the defense tried to say something about that detective giving her money It's like they're all in on the plot here, but that doesn't really make any sense. First of all, none of the evidence speaks to that at all. But the other thing is, is that there were literally adoption papers found on Ben Novak's desk. So why would she kill him before he had officially adopted her? Yeah, no, she wouldn't. She absolutely would not. And apparently Cristobal got on the stand and he just bold-faced lied left and right. It was so egregious that the judge later said that he had never witnessed a worse case of perjury in his multi-decade career. Oh my God. He described it as, quote, 
an affront to the criminal justice system. It's shameful. I've never seen anything like it. After he said his name, I'm not sure he said anything truthful again. (laughs) Oh, my God. Whoa. The jury was inclined to agree with the judge, and they very swiftly delivered a guilty verdict to both parties. And both Narcy and her brother were given life sentences without the possibility of parole. Woo. Okay, so this was a long one, guys. Thanks for hanging with us. But I have four Wikipedia fun facts. Wikipedia fun facts. Number one, famous hotelier Steve Wynn, who is worth over a billion dollars, actually was inspired by a childhood trip to the Fountain Blue to go into the hotel business and the layout of the Fountain Blue inspired every hotel that he ever built after that. And in a strange twist of fate, he met a woman who would eventually become his second and now current wife. And her name was Andrea Hissom. She was British. And somehow they started talking about hotels and the Fountain Blue and he was talking about how it inspired him. And she said, well, you know, the guy who built it is my uncle. And it turns out she's the daughter of Ben Novak Sr.'s sister. Crazy. Weird little turn of fate there. Also, weirdly, I think that they were fighting May for some money. And it's like, honey, you got enough. Don't fight May for any money because you're owed some part of your great uncle's fortune or something. Number two, let's get back to Kelsey Grammer. So Kelsey Grammer actually ended up paying for and planning Ben's funeral. Wow. Yes. Narcy at the time was obviously worried about getting arrested and everyone was getting really upset because he wasn't being laid to rest. And Kelsey Grammer stepped up and he took care of it for his childhood best friend. The two young men had met only a year after Kelsey's father had been murdered in a home invasion and their house was burned down in the same home invasion. Wow. So yeah, so he, that makes sense. Yes. And he was actually in the drama club and Ben was doing some, I think, set work. Like he was working on props or something and was a year younger when they connected. So they had a, a trauma bond, I believe. But that's not where it ends, Andy. This is so crazy. We could do a Patreon story, I think, about Kelsey Grammer's life. Later on in life, his 18-year-old sister was kidnapped during a holdup at a Red Lobster, at least according to this cracked article I read. I also read it was just a general seafood restaurant in Colorado where she was living at the time. Well, the people who were holding up this seafood restaurant decided that it wasn't just enough to take the money. They also kidnapped and sexually assaulted and eventually murdered his 18-year-old sister as well. Oh, my God. Some years after that, Kelsey's younger twin half-brothers died in a freak scuba diving accident, and one of them was very likely eaten by sharks. This goes on. And then one of his close friends who was a producer on the hit show Frasier, of which, of course, Kelsey Grammer was the star was on one of the planes that went down on 9-11. And then in 2009, his childhood best friend was murdered by his wife, as well as his best friend's mother. 
That is a lot. It explained a lot to me about Kelsey Grammer, who I have always thought was maybe an unpleasant man. No offense. Sorry, Kelsey Grammer. But man, the fact that he's even still standing after all that. Kudos to Mr. Grammer. Okay, so number three. I'm only on number three. This is the longest episode of all time. (laughs) There is a Lifetime movie about this case called beautiful and twisted. It came out in 2015. I did not watch this one. I don't necessarily have high hopes for it, given that it has a 39% on Rotten Tomatoes. It stars Paz Vega as Narcy, Candace Bergen, that's Murphy Brown, as Bernice, and Rob Lowe as Ben Novak Jr. Oh, wow. Who also played Drew Peterson. So he's gone from murderer to murder victim in the Lifetime canon. Okay, and finally, I have now reached the last Wikipedia fun fact, which also none of these came from Wikipedia, but from various other sources. Narcy, I think you would all like to know, has made a bestie in prison. The New York Post reported on August 30th, 2022, that Narcy is considered somewhat of a female Don in prison due to the length of time she has been there and the fact that the murders that she organized were quite brutal. So when Ghislaine Maxwell, oh my God, Jeffrey Epstein's right-hand gal and disgusting sex trafficker, trafficess, ended up in the same prison, she apparently has been buddying right up to Narcy. They are two peas in a pod, and now they are prison besties. Wow. And I guess there's probably not a lot of people in prison who have had The experience of great opulence and wealth, but also are really morally bankrupt, terrible people who commit heinous crimes like the two of them. So they really have a lot in common. Elaine and Narcy sitting in a tree. So in conclusion, after this very lengthy episode, I have to say, I think we've said it before, money does not buy happiness. It does not. And... All those hotel suites, sometimes they ain't so sweet. Oh, gosh. Think about what's happened in them now that we know. Mm-hmm. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so you don't curse your family for several generations with terrible love affairs. <laughs> love you all. Yes, that. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 <laughs> 